This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Equity Mind! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Equity. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. We are back in studio, which is a nice change. Socially distant. Socially distanced, yes. uh, But back in front of the microphones rather than under a blanket at home. Yes. And I'm even more excited because we've got someone here with us. Yes. Exciting times back in the studio. Goodbye, blanket. And, for now, uh, for, for now. now. <laughs> and hello, good audio quality again, which is nice. Yes. <laughs> but to your point, Ren, we're very excited today to have our good friend of the show and uh, I guess barometer of sanity, <laughs> 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 Andrew Brown joining us again. Andrew, third time for 2020 on the show. Great to have you. Oh, I am delighted to be here. So, Andrew, we wanted to get you back on as I said, A, because our audience consistently reach out and ask if we can get you on to make sense of the craziness that is going on at the moment. So we thought we would do that. So we've reached out to them for a number of, I guess, themes and questions that they want answered. There's a lot to cover. So we may as well get stuck into it. Yeah, let's start general. Andrew, what the hell is going on? <laughs> <laughs> let's just put some numbers around it and, and that'll provide a bit of perspective. It'll sort of show you how big the playing field is, so to speak. And for clarity, this is recorded on the 5th of May. Correct. So I last recorded uh, in the studio uh, in about mid-January when the ASX 200 was at around... 7,000 to 7,100, okay? And as I walked away from the office tonight, it's about uh, 5,400, okay? So that is around about a 24% fall, I think. Mm. Its low point since then uh, at the close was about 45.50, which was on the 23rd of March. So we've actually bounced quite significantly from from that point, about a a, a 20% bounce or so. In America, the S&P, around about the same time, the S&P was about 33.20, 
Its low point was also on the 23rd of March at about 22.37, which was a one-third fall. And uh, as I walked away from the office, the futures were about 28.60. So they're only down about 14% from where they were in January. Mm -hmm. And they've bounced about 28, nearly 30% from the low point. So that is a pretty significant bounce, and I'll try and explain why that's happening. I guess the first question to come from that then is if we address the bounce, and Ren and I recently did an episode on the concept of a bull trap, mm. and we looked you know, back historically at what has happened when this has occurred yep. um, and tried to shed some light on perhaps are we in a bull trap or are we just going to see another 10-year bull run? <laughs> yep. Do you think we're in a bull trap? Yes. What is normal, and if you go back to the last two real bear markets we've had, which were the ones starting in about April 2000 and then the one that that started in 2007 and gathered pace in 2008, what usually happens is there's some sort of catalyst, you know, whatever the catalyst is and however remote it is, that creates a crack in stock prices which are too high. And so what typically happens is you get a fairly rapid fall. It's usually sort of 20, 25%, something of that nature. You then get a rebound, okay? Why does that happen, okay? It happens because people see that they think stocks are much cheaper than they were, so they're happy to buy the dip, if you want to put it that way. They see that uh, there's some bargains, and what they don't do is they don't properly estimate what's going to happen economically, okay? So they get too optimistic about what's going to go on in the economy. And so what happens is they buy, there is a strong rally that's usually somewhere in the order of 20 to 25% off the low. And then things generally peter away over an extended period of time. So in 2000, the bull market finished in April 2000. And the bear market finally concluded in about March 2003. In 2007, 8, 9, the bull market really finished in sort of mid-2007. There was a very, you know, grinding and occasionally more steeper fall, which concluded in November 2008. You then had a really strong rally to January 2009 of about 25%. And then that fell to pieces again, and the ultimate bottom of the market was in fact... uh, Uh, on the uh, 9th of March 2009, but who's counting? Okay, and that's actually when the market finally bottomed out and and the bull market that that we've seen really began. So it's really all about people underestimate, in some shape or form, the economic impact of what may have been a financial market phenomenon. Okay, 2000 was a financial market phenomenon. It was the dot-com boom gone mad. And of course, in 2007, 8, 9, it was the mortgage market phenomenon in the US that then spread around the world because of all the people that had exposure to it. This is something really different. Okay, there is no one on earth can tell you that they've seen this before because they haven't. Okay, because Spanish flu, you'd have been two years old. So, <laughs> I, 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 you know, if, if you're sort of 100 years, you know, you'd be 102 today. And, and, and I doubt you're a stockbroking at nine months old. So no one's really seen it. So we've got to go back to the textbooks and, and, and everything else. So never in my lifetime have I seen the economic breaks 
applied like this. It's like a sort of handbrake turn on the economy. I think there's a very strong chance that people are underestimating what the medium-term economic effects of this are. They certainly were, and I will plead guilty to that as well, early in March. I think we all thought, ah, this, this won't last too long. It may not spread too widely. The stock prices have fallen sort of 10 to 15% at that stage. Yeah, you know, that's, you can start to buy some things. And I certainly started to buy some things then, and that was not the best move because, you know, the falls were very, very sharp. We've not seen falls as sharp as this. Mm. Okay. Simply because we've got machines, we've got algorithms, they respond to things. To put March in context, these days you had in March of plus and minus, you know, tens and 11%. I can only remember one day through the GFC where the market fell 10%. Okay. And we had day after day of markets going wild one way or the other until really March the 23rd when the sort of Fed basically threw everything at markets, threw everything at credit markets to say we will stand behind it no matter what. So you had a period of volatility the like of which I've never seen and I've been in financial markets for nearly 40 years. April sort of, you know, has kind of seen that through a bit. You've had some strong rallies in April. People have started to look and say, hey, the economy's opening up. And so that's good. Well, yeah, it's good, but the economy is not going to come back in the way that it was in January, February. And in any event, what I think both in America and also in Australia, and we'll discuss this, has been exposed, is that the economy in January and February wasn't that great either. So, you know, when you look at where markets were and where they were priced, they were pretty silly at that stage, as was the general theme of, of when I did the long podcast with, with you gentlemen in mm. January. And that now I think looks, you know, even more the case. But I think I think there are a lot of economic weaknesses going into COVID, uh, let alone what COVID's going to do. So let's talk about something you mentioned there, which was that the central banks threw the kitchen sink at it, opened the floodgates, turned the money printer on, whatever euphemism you want to use, but basically committed to doing whatever it took. How much do you think of the rally is central bank driven and just, you know, confidence because of that? Oh, about 150%. <laughs> it is by far and away the main reason behind the rally. It's a liquidity driven rally. If you think I'm talking rubbish, if any of you sat through four and a bit hours of Warren Buffett on Sunday morning Australian time, in effect, you know, you could distill everything Warren Buffett said into, you know, really a handful of things. The most telling thing he basically said was he thought Jay Powell was the best chairman of the Federal Reserve in a long, long time since Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker's before you guys' time, but Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Fed, who everybody will tell you is the best chairman ever of the Fed because he broke the back of inflation in the early 1980s in the US. And so he had a healthy regard for Jay Powell, yet at the same time, of course, because of what Jay Powell's done, He's taken away Warren's investing opportunities. <laughs> so that we, we know in 2007, 8, 9, basically what Buffett did, particularly in late 08, was he did a lot of preference share issues where effectively he had a bit of a free option on the upside for companies like Goldman Sachs and others like that. And, of course, he's not been able to do any. Yeah. And it's because, in, in effect, the Fed have flooded the market with money and credit. And so a lot of companies, and 
companies that shouldn't be borrowing have, and they've been able to borrow as much money as they want at ridiculously low interest rates. Number two, don't believe me, they're ridiculously low. Warren Buffett told you they're ridiculously <laughs> low. I'd rather be a borrower than a lender. Oh, we wouldn't be lending at these rates, he well, said explicitly. Buffett did borrow, even though he has $130 billion on his balance sheet. Correct. He went to debt markets in Europe and Japan and borrowed at 0%. Absolutely right. And so he should as well. So he had his opportunities taken away by the amounts of liquidity that the Fed and other central banks have pumped into the market. You know, he doesn't want to be a lender at these rates. And he's basically invested next to nothing in equities and, of course, in one specific industry, which... Yeah, you know, the the great black mark inverted commas <laughs> on his career is of course airlines. You know, he's been there three times and lost money every time. After decades of saying, you know, it, the best thing a capitalist could have done is shoot the Wright brothers down. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Why did, why did someone not shoot Kitty? The best thing a capitalist could have done is shoot down Orville and Kitty Hawk. <laughs> and then he, he had he had various other things. I'm trying which any report it was in where he said uh, he said now I have a one eight hundred number to ring every time. I think about buying an airline stock, <laughs> and he obviously obviously got unplugged. Yeah, he lost yeah. that number. Yeah. The craziest story I I think around the confidence and the liquidity that the central banks have given the markets is that Boeing was in a situation where they had to go hat in hand to the government and ask for a government bailout, and then could turn around a month or two later and say we don't need it anymore because credit markets just. Mm opened up. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's what's gone on. And that, I mean, it is that that's basically driven stock prices. It's also, don't forget, it's driven credit prices as well. One of the things that was going on in, you know, that sort of third week of March was, number one, the, the US 10-year Treasury bond, which is, you know, it is the key rate on planet Earth. Everything rests off that. Every security that's priced rests on, you know, what's the US 10-year Treasury? And there was illiquidity in that market. And that's why the Fed had to step in. And also, of course, what was going on is high-yield credit markets were gluing up. So you can see, I mean, things like the credit card companies in the US, you know, their stock prices fell to pieces. You know, I had one in my portfolio in January when I last saw you. It was trading at about 100. Its name's Alliance Data Systems. It got down to 25. Wow. Wow. It's currently 50, so it's doubled from the bottom, but lost three quarters of its value in the space of seven weeks. Wow. Wow. So, you know, because basically it was going to get glued up and everybody thought there's going to be a lot of defaults on credit cards, and there will be, of course. But they're the kind of things that were going on. The problem you have is that stock prices where they stand at the moment in the US, they're they're trading at about 17 and a half times earnings in 2019. Mm. Now, earnings in 2019 are a record level ever on the Standard & Poor's 500 at 163 S&P points when you aggregate them. So we're not returning back there for a little while. We're Mm. certainly not going to earn that in 2020. And nobody really knows what we're going to earn in 2020. And and it's not an unreasonable argument that it doesn't matter. Uh, I'd accept that. It doesn't matter what we earn in 2020. And, And so people are starting to have a stab at 2021. And just listen to virtually any US conference call for a company result. And all you get are groups of analysts on there that are desperate to see if there are any green shoots. <laughs> yeah, are there any green shoots? Are things picking up? I mean, if you listen to Google last week or Facebook, yeah, the, 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 the attempted prompting of, of the speakers was, was amazing. So they're all desperate. And the reason they're desperate is because guess what? The 2021 estimate for Standard Poor's 500 earnings is 
163. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, that's nuts. Yeah, just okay. very optimistic. It's very yeah. optimistic. And don't forget, there's, there's one other little thing that that's cast on a 23% tax rate, which is not embedded in stone because that actually fades out after five years unless it's re reaffirmed. And secondly, everybody's forgotten there's this rather big event between now and the end of 2020. It's in the first week of November. Yes, yeah. It's called an election. <laughs> and there's there's no guarantee that the, the man who wants the, you know, who got the working man's vote and has since subjugated him with no wage rises and given everything to the top 1% in the US mm. will be re-elected, you know, given his practical performance over the past uh, two months. So if we just recap on that, 150% of the reason that stocks are going up at the moment is because of oh, the liquidity, liquidity yeah. coming into the yeah. market. Now, back in 2009, when the US undertook a huge quantitative easing program, yep. we saw a large rally in stock prices, yes. longest bull rally we've yep. ever seen. Yep. And now they've come out and said that we are essentially going to do this at an infinite scale. Yeah. What's to say that what we saw from 2009 to now is not going to repeat itself again. Simple, because basically the effect of this, as you do more and more of it, the impact of it gets less and less and less. One of the fundamental things is it, it's trying to see it feeding down into the real economy is quite difficult. You know what's generally happened with extremely low interest rates and high liquidity in the US. Corporations borrow and they use the money to buy back their own stock, push their EPS up and enrich their executives. And that's that's what happens with, you know, reduced tax rates as well. So that it's very hard to see how, particularly when you're starting from very low interest rates anyway, you know, don't forget in 2007 and 2008, don't forget in Australia, you were starting in Australia then when Glenn Stevens cut rates dramatically. He was cutting from 7%. Yeah. We're now starting cutting from three quarters of 1%, you know, <laughs> sort of money. beforehand. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the impact inevitably has to be extremely low. What you're also going to find as well in terms of its impact on the real economy, and what I'd suggest to you is when stock prices are where they are, the real economy has to actually react with corporations. They've got to grow profits. Okay, to actually sustain the kind of stock prices they're at, or at least have a show of growing profits in 2021, 2022. The problem you've got with that is that the real economy has now been impacted by COVID, significantly so, and there'll be some structural change. We'll come on to that in a minute. But we know that this stuff just does not get into the hands of the consumer. Okay, and most economies are 60% consumer, mm. you know, spending their money and doing things and the multiplier effect through housing or through consumption of goods, et cetera, et cetera. So my suggestion to you is it won't have as big an impact as last time because we're coming from a much, much lower level. We've seen it already. Uh, stock prices have by and large reflected that or, you know, already. And so I think the likely impact of it is going to be much, much more dulled. So let's say they they did $4 trillion last time in the US. Yeah. Let's say they do $6 trillion this time and yeah. they, they don't see the effect. What do they do next? Well, they just, unfortunately, their, their idea is they just keep printing. And once they keep printing, that has a real problem. Because if you print money, then you debase everything. Mm. There's so much debt. One, some people would argue the only way to get rid of the debt is to debase it completely. The best way to debase debt is you just print money mm. infinitely. And if you do that, you get inflation. 
And if you get inflation, you are not going to have interest rates of zero. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And you probably won't have the US as the reserve currency And anymore. you won't have the reserve. <laughs> yeah, correct. And so at some stage, there's a tipping point, okay, where there's too much money around, it's chasing too little goods, you get inflation, and you end up getting too much inflation, okay? And that, that, that's where we'll have a real problem because then you'll have to put interest rates up. There's too much debt. You won't be able to cope with it. Ugh, problem. And that's where you get think, that's where you get stagflation. It's where you get rising unemployment and high inflation. I'm old enough to have lived slightly younger than you guys are at the moment through a period of stagflation, which is the mid 1970s. Uh, it's the ugliest economic environment you can possibly envisage it is horrible okay it's really nasty and bad okay and you don't want to yeah (laughs) you don't want to see you don't want to see that again that's why of course the gold price is where it is at you know over 1700 us dollars an ounce it's why you know gold stocks have been you know obviously one of the very very best performers over the last period of time if my memory serves me right i think i said have some gold in your portfolio (laughs) when i last came and if you did you've done very well if you just bought you know the bog standard you know uh you know, Newcrest, Evolutions, Northern Stars, you know, you, you haven't had to go too far down the pile to, you know, make a few dollars. So, Andrew, while we're talking about inflation, I want to ask you to reconcile two half-formed thoughts for me. Yeah, so, sure. <laughs> bear with me on this. So, on one hand, we're talking about inflation. We're talking about an unprecedented level of printing yeah. uh, in currencies, especially in the US. Yes. But on the other hand, it feels like there is a lot of deflationary talk in the real economy as yeah. the demand shock just obliterates a lot of commodities and industries and stuff like that. Correct. How do we reconcile those two conversations that seem to be happening yeah. in different worlds? I think certainly in the near term, the demand shock is very real. And and it's going to, I think, part of the issue is that that demand shock is going to persist longer than people are building into stock prices at the moment. Let's just take something I think that's fairly simple to understand and that there's not a lot of controversy about and that's airline travel okay i mean the simple fact is in australia it would be a miracle if you are able to go anywhere outside of australia's borders in 2020 other than new zealand Mm. and and maybe a pacific island Mm. and if the government looked at the stats they should actually let you go to vietnam as well um (laughs) you know which which has had next to no cases either maybe they wouldn't want australians coming down correct (laughs) that might be the problem but you know that yeah your your capacity to go further afield than that, certainly over the next three to six months, is pretty much nil. Okay, so we know the demand for airline travel internationally is going to be very, very low. Clearly, domestic will open up bit by bit, and I suspect domestic airline travel might be a bit stronger than people are envisaging, mm. you know, simply because people will want to get out. The prices will be very, very low. The second issue, of course, I think, which is incontrovertible, is that you know we're going to we're going to get to sort of 14 percent unemployment. It will fall quickly to, let's say, ten, but it's going to stay rigid at just below ten. Let's say eight. The simple fact is, whilst you may want to break out and go to the pub and go partying and go to Melbourne from Sydney or anyway, but Sydney from Melbourne, (laughs) you ain't going to have the money to do it. Yeah, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are not going to have the money to do it. Okay, so what you want and what you're able to do is not going to be there. And so the demand for a whole lot of things is going to be much, much lower. It's, It's a consumer issue. 
we've touched on the fact the consumer is in a much worse state in Australia than people ever thought. Mm. Uh, you've seen that in the bank results. You know, when, when you've got basically 7% of people wanting to defer their mortgage, and that's accounting for about 8 to 9% of three banks' loan books, the NAB, ANZ and Westpac, who've published those numbers. You know, they're big numbers. Mm. You know, and they're people, you know, ranging from people who've, you know, got a loan-to-value ratio on their mortgage that's that's not very high because they've paid a lot of it down, but they don't have a job, you know, through to ones who've just bought. Mm. Poor people, you know, who've got an LVR of 90. And just to put a real number on that, that 8 to 9% of the book yeah. value, you, we were talking about this before. What yeah. What's the dollar figure? The dollar figure for ANZ is $36 billion, for Westpac is $39 billion, and NAB do it on a different basis. Uh, those two are applications, whereas NAB approvals for NAB are $26.5 billion. So 39 36 yeah. and 26 so about $100 billion Yeah, in, absolutely. It's $100 yeah. billion of mortgages to be deferred. Okay, where people are requesting deferment. So that tells you the consumer wasn't in a great place beforehand. That it's take they've got no buffer. Yeah, you know, and it's just taken a, a, a small gust of wind to blow them over. So there's that side of things which we which we know in Australia demand will be weak. In the US, we know demand will be weak. You've got sort of twenty-six million people claiming employment insurance of one sort or another, how quickly can they be put back to work? Probably not as quickly as you imagine. In Australia, I do want to touch on one thing that's really different. The US are trying to go back to work when they're getting 30,000 cases a day still of COVID. Mm -hmm. That has not changed from the beginning of April. Mm -hmm. There is no flattening in their curve whatsoever. Well, it's just flattening at a very high level. Yeah, it's flattening <laughs> at a high level. And as you know, New York's halved, I'll, I'll give you that. In fact, it's more than halved, but it's been taken up by other places. So you, you have an issue there that, that if COVID is as contagious as people imagine and there is not some form of immunity... Mm. then the US is going to really scramble from here. Mm. In Australia, I think one of the issues is that we're, we're at a very different psychological level. One of the big things generally, I'll just touch on one in a minute, but one of the biggest things generally is if you did a psychology course earlier in life, get the books out again because you're going to need them. The psych in Australia is really different because we've now got accustomed to the fact that we have a handful of cases every day. You know, if you live in South Australia, there's been none for 13 days. If you live in Canberra, there's no active cases or anything else. So we're in eradication mode. We've eradicated it. I go to work on a bus. There are four people get on that bus most days, four or five people, not 44. When we go back to having 44 on it, somebody's going to get COVID, mm. okay? And when we start getting cases which are manageable by the health system, which is the whole point of being locked down, are people going to freak out because the case numbers are going to go back to 20 or 30 or 40 mm. or whatever it is a day? And are people going to get spooked by that? I don't know. Is it going to force them inside? I don't know. I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I, my, my feeling is yes. And it's because the economy is not going to respond in the way that people want or people imagine that is going to mean that people will start to realise that the recovery in profits for companies, by and large, is being pushed out and pushed out and pushed mm. out. And mm. it's that that should mean that stock prices will retreat from where they are, okay, to some degree. Yeah, so circling back to the question around the bull trap, and you did say off-air that you think we're going to see a fall beyond the point we're at at the moment. We're tracking yep. pretty flat at the moment. Yeah. It sounds like, though, that you think that is going to be 
over quite a, a period of time. Certainly what happened in the bear markets of 2000 to 2003 and 2007-9, and you know, let's be blunt, they're not the ideal precedents. You know, there, there, there are very different reasons behind both of those markets to what's gone on here. But we can use some of the precedent from them. And it really is all about the fact that people overestimate economic recovery. Mm. And so then what happens is that they start to get a bit disillusioned, you know, because there's more downgrades and companies need another placement, mm. uh, another capital raise. And so they start to get a little bit disillusioned and things start getting marked down. And they get marked down gradually rather than the kind of major volatility that you obviously saw in March and April. There may be more volatility because there's just a hell of a lot more machines playing around mm. in the markets than there ever used to be. So it may be a bit more volatile than I think. But that's basically why it happens, and it's why it'll happen over, I think, a more extended period of time. That's not bad news, okay? Why isn't it bad news? Well, remember one of the lessons I tried to leave with everybody in January, which is that, you know, when I thought stocks were really expensive, you know, if you put money into the market on a regular basis – dollar cost averaging, okay, then what it means is that if the market grinds out a bear market over maybe an 18-month period, well, you're going to be buying stocks on a regular basis at slightly lower levels, but in five years' time or more, and don't listen to me, listen to Warren Buffett again, <laughs> you know, and particularly if you're younger, this is stuff that, you know, you might want to access, you know, in 20 years' time, mm. then that's actually a good thing because you're going to be able to buy some really cheap stocks. And every now and again, you're going to be able to buy some extraordinarily cheap stocks. So to put some practicality about that, and this certainly did work in the in the 2007-9 bear market, my portfolio and the kind of things I've been trying to do in the last little while I've been trying to buy really great companies at sort of much better prices than they previously traded at. You have to be careful there because some really great companies are having a big hole shot in their earnings at the moment. So something like Sydney Airport, for example, yeah, we know that's got an oligopoly, you know, for sort of infinity. I mean, obviously, its monopoly is going to expire in about five years' time. And obviously, it's got some short-term issues that, you know, one of its two major customers on the domestic <laughs> side is no longer with us. But, you know, and also, of course, international travel's being pushed out as well. But we know in about three years' time, it may take three to four years and Alan Joyce has spoken about this, to get back up to the sort of levels of travel. Mm. I said, read your psychology books. There's some well-known things in psychology. Once you start doing something for about 60 days, it becomes ingrained. Yeah. Yeah. You've been hiding under the doona, to coin a <laughs> phrase, for well about 60 days. So your behavior will change. Your behavior is changing. Uh, whether you know it or not. And some of that behaviour is things like you're ordering a lot more online. Mm. You know, older people are ordering online. You know, yeah, young people yeah, have done yeah. it, but older people are doing it. Are they going to go back? So there are things like you know, at the airport, there are things like Transurban where it's going to take obviously a while for the traffic levels to get back to where they were. But, you know, eventually they will. So they're, they're the kind of, you know, great things that you can potentially buy mm. you know, and start looking at. There are some... Other great companies in the consumer area that sort of get very interesting, some of those have bounced quite quickly. But, you know, there are one or two in Australia. Certainly one thing I've bought during this period of time because they, they were crushed before COVID and then have been 
kicked with COVID as well as Treasury Wine Estates. Mm. And they're, they're going to be really nice and separate out the really sexy bit for you within the next 18 months, which is pound files. Um, you know, which, and, you know, just look around the world. You know, if you look at Compagnie uh, Financière Richemont, which trades in Switzerland, which owns things like Cartier and Dunhill and Mont Blanc, things like that. And you look at the sort of multiples they trade on or LVMH, um, you know, Louis Vuitton, Moe Hennessy in France, you know, and you look at those kind of things. I mean, Penfolds will attract a real premium multiple and, and will be great to have. So that, that, that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, you find some, you find some real crap. But the crap's so cheap. <laughs> yeah, it's really cheap. Yeah, so it's sort of cigar butt investing, yeah, if you will. And that, that worked really, really well in the 2009 bear market where it, it worked very well in property trusts or REITs in, in that particular market. And it's sort of not quite working in, in that space this time around because they don't have as much debt. But there's lots of other crappy companies that are trading at big discounts. One of the areas that, that people can look at, and it's really easy to analyze, is list investment companies. Mm. The discounts on some of these things are really blown out. Mm. Yeah. We had, a, we had a chat about this on an earlier episode. Yeah. Crazy. Especially when you take the cash out of some of them and you just look at oh, the yeah. assets they're holding. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I you know, one I own and, and bought a little bit too early, but have averaged down, averaged down, averaged down, and are just about getting there now. It's kind of called L-Wad Long short so it's a long short fund they started the sort of start of the year with an nta of about a dollar 60 they managed to reduce it down to about a dollar six at its worst when they with the nta was a dollar 60 they were trading at about a 14 percent discount to nta this is a long short fund okay and so it should trade at a much lesser discount than a fund that is long only in other words just buy shares so the discount blew out at one stage to as high as 35 percent so I'm there having bought them at a discount of 14 when the NTA is $1.60 odd and they get down to a 35% discount when it's seven. <laughs> Great, you know, easy way to tear up half your money in no time at all. I mean, the good news is, number one, their NTA is gone back up again it's just over a dollar 50 now and secondly but the discount's still very wide it's still in the very high 20s and it shouldn't be nice. so you know i, I can i, I can see that. bryce just writing that yeah, one down so, <laughs> <laughs> the stock code for that is lsf and they're, 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 thankfully the guys are doing a buyback as well which is very sensible and it's very consistent so there are others out there like that you need to be careful obviously the manager's got to be half decent it's got to be the right sort of asset class as well and obviously the discount's got to be good Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
I want to ask a question just on that, not not so much about what's going on now, but more generally, LICs seem to be trading at a discount a lot, and mm. a lot of them are buying back to try and close that discount. Yep. How do you think about, maybe not so much for your fund, but no. for personal everyday investors, yep. investing in an LIC where potentially you're buying it at a discount, but yep. it's not moving as in line with the NTA, or yep. investing in a private fund? Okay. I actually really like LICs, but you must ensure that, you know, the manager's good, got an okay track record. What you also need to look at is the expenses. There are two expenses in LIC. There's the management fee. Okay. Most of those I think are fairly egregious, but, uh, you know, that's that you, but the worst thing about a, the worst thing about an LIC is if it's a smaller LIC, it's the other costs. So the cost of running the share registry, company secretary, audit, listing fees, non-executive director fees and things like that. So I've been to more than one LIC annual general meeting and complain bitterly. <laughs> yeah, I, I would the love cost. to say that. Yeah. Like, Damn it, Andrew. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I, the management fees, look, they're, you know, some of them are too high and but they're in the contract, you know that, but it's 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 the other stuff. Okay. So, you know, you, you're looking at some of these funds where the fees are sort of two and a half percent plus the net asset value. And so that means they're going to trade at a big discount. Mm. What I like to see in terms of if things are at a discount, now, if you believe your portfolio is the best portfolio you can put together given how you invest and your things at a 30% discount, you should be buying it till it hurts. Mm. And then you make sure all the other fees are as low as they can possibly be. And some of these guys just don't do that. And yet they sit there and whinge at listed companies that they own, you know, about their cost base. And yet they sit there with their own cost base being inflated. Mm. So, you know, find some that are, you know, that are run really properly, uh, you know, on that basis. And it's pretty easy to do the homework and a bit of googling and everything else will soon elicit some complaints from others uh there's a lot more activism in lic's now which is really good and some of the people doing the activism are 10 times smarter than me i can assure you yeah for example and you'd think this would never happen who on earth would take on a fund management company partly owned by the packer family <laughs> Is you know, it which is, no, <laughs> uh, which is uh, which was which was Elliston Global. Uh, so there's a fabulously sensible and smart gentleman called David Kingston who used to work at Rothschild when I was there as well. Yeah, and David's been a strong activist in LICs, mm. uh, and he uh, let's let's just say he doesn't miss. Okay, he doesn't miss. So Google David Kingston and Elliston, and you get a bit of an idea of of the sort of aggression that does go on when these things are not quite right. Great. Well, we might we might try and reach out to him and get him on the show and uh, no let him let loose. No, uh, chance of that happening, I can assure really? you, Rand are about nil. Okay, all right, all right. I'll take those odds. Yeah. <laughs> so, Andrew, I want to move to another major event that has happened over this period of time, and that is oil going to a negative price, yes. which we haven't seen ever. Correct. To summarise a couple of questions that have come through from our audience, yeah. essentially they want to know is now the time to make a play that is oil-based, be it through companies that obviously are exposed to oil or rely on oil as a part of their operations and as such it's going to be cheaper for them to to run. What are your thoughts around that? The issue with oil is obviously, you know, there's just too much of it given the demand's fallen away. My figuring is, if you know, if you're ever going to make a play in oil, sort of pretty much now is the time to do it. I've bought a couple of oil stocks in the past two weeks, which basically beach petroleum, 
because it's it's got a great balance sheet and it's got quite a lot of gas production as well. But you know, basically the the state of its balance sheet and you know it, its earnings base, I think, is pretty reasonable. And then I've bought another one, which I won't mention, is much higher risk. Aramco. No, it's not. <laughs> so the, the issue here is, I mean, the whole thing came about because basically the OPEC has operated as a cartel from the 1970s. It's been generally fairly effective. And then obviously the OPEC's members are changing in terms of who's got influence. Okay. And, and obviously the Russians are there now in a way that they weren't in the 1970s. And it was just that Russian-Saudi tension that really tweaked things originally. Yeah, they now have started to cut production. We know demand's fallen off a cliff. Long-term demand for oil, obviously, is going to be slower growing because of, you know, environmental issues and everything else. But, you know, I tend to think it's going to be a long time before you eradicate that conventional cars off the road. Mm. So there's going to be an underlying demand for oil. Mm. And... At the kind of prices it's trading at at the moment, the simple fact is that the US shale industry can't operate. Yeah. Yeah, it's break-evens in the 40s. So that basically the supply side will get shut off. So it may well be that the long-term, generally oil stayed in the 40s because it's enabled everybody to play, the producers to play. And in the 20s, by and large, it's going to shut down a whole bunch of people. And... It's, unless Trump bails them out. Unless Trump bails them out. Which he has it, whispered about. He's, he's whispered about, but Trump may not be around after November. True. And so, you know, uh, in, in effect, what's going to happen is all the hedge funds that own the high-yield debt of these, um, you know, these shale producers are just going to have to eat it. Mm. And they won't come back. So I think what you're looking at is that basically the production price of oil is going to come down the curve because it's going to be with entities that have got, you know, lower than 40s. And so, you know, the the market will get back into equilibrium once again. What helps it get back into equilibrium a bit, I mean, as you know, you can't store oil anywhere at the moment. The storage is pretty much done. One area of the stock market that's had a bit of a boom, although it's now coming off the top, there are about seven or eight tanker stocks. These are oil tanker stocks, things like Frontline, FRO is the code. They're listed in New York. DHT, the code, of course, is DHT. (laughs) They're listed in New York. Scorpio tankers, things like that. And, And, you know, the rate for tankers at its low point is about, 15,000 US dollars a day. The break even for most of these guys is 25. And recently they've been renting their tankers out at 130,000 US dollars yeah. a day. Jeez, it's a good business. If it's, you can so get it's, it. a good, it's, a, it's a good business, <laughs> but the price moves. On seriously, the the price moves on a sixpence, yeah. uh, you know, up seven, eight, nine fold. Mm. So, um, yeah, so those those stocks have all sort of doubled and have probably seen their peak for the time being. They they work inversely to the oil price, as you probably worked out mm. by now. You mentioned balance sheet there, Andrew, and that flows in nicely to another question from a listener. And they're asking, what are the best balance sheet fundamentals that you look for in a time? when like this, especially if you think we are going into a bear market, is it any different to what you would be looking for otherwise? Yes and no, okay. Yes, in the sense that clearly, you you know, if, if the world economy is trundling along quite nicely and the company that you're looking at is in an industry that's growing quite nicely, then you can afford to be uh, a bit slacker, if I can put it that way, in terms of the balance sheet. Okay, at the current stage, of course, that does not pertain. So what I what I'm looking for in companies at the moment is obviously I want very low debt, 
my preference is to have scads of liquidity. It's important if you analyse companies, you go through all the notes in the accounts. In the notes of the accounts, the companies will tell you they have a credit line of X and they have drawn Y amount of it. So they might have a credit line of $100 million and they've drawn it to only 20 Okay, And what you want to see probably by their next balance date is that they've drawn the remaining 80 and it's sat in cash. Okay, so you know if you're a, if you're a, I mean Qantas is is obviously the best example. I mean they're you know they're burning through a heap of money obviously mm. at the moment, but they've got lots and lots of credit open to them because they've built their balance sheet up quite well for an airline over an extended period of time. In other areas, what you need to be very careful of is particularly in companies that have subscription type business models, on their balance sheet on the liability side of their balance sheet is something called deferred revenue. If you imagine Bryce and Wren here, you know, basically charging you twelve hundred bucks a year to access their service, so a hundred bucks a month. <laughs> when... Worth it. <laughs> <laughs> Worth ten times as much. Um, Hold on. <laughs> you know, on day one when you send your twelve hundred dollar payment to them, obviously they've got your twelve hundred bucks, but of course they've got an obligation to provide you with a year's worth of subscription service. And that of course works exactly the same with software, you know, with, with other kinds of publications and everything else. And what you find is a lot of companies look as though they've got a lot of cash. And then you go to the liability side of the balance sheet and all the cash is basically the money that they've got in for a service they haven't yet provided. Mm. That's quite important. You've started to see that some of the travel companies got into that bind, and that's the bind. The best example of that by a long chalk was Virgin. So Virgin had $1.7 billion of cash, and guess what the deferred revenue was on the other side, which was people like me who'd given them money, a return trip to Hobart for mm. me and Mrs. Abron, <laughs> um, uh, which we, of course, now won't get. Mm. Um, and, you know, it, and it was basically all fares that people had paid in advance. Mm. Uh, and so the real debt in Virgin was the $5.5 billion of core debt on mm. the liability side of the balance sheet, and that's too much, and see you later. Yeah. So they're the kind of things you've got to look for. You've got to be careful and look for those little tricks. It's at times like this, you can't just sit there and look at the balance sheet itself. You've got to go into the notes and actually make sure that the companies have got credit lines they can access, credit lines they can tap, and these companies have to disclose all this to you. It's just a matter of you've got to be prepared to do the work and read the notes, okay, and then just be careful on things like deferred revenue as well because that cash, don't forget if you're Bryce and Wren and after a year I decide I don't like the service, <laughs> then my $1,200 is not coming back again. And so deferred revenue falls and it's a great way of seeing a subscription business that's dying. Mm, okay, that's really good way to look at it. Growing businesses have growing deferred revenue. Mm important. So Andrew, I want to move to some of how you're positioning yourself and how you're thinking about uh, positioning E72. Now, you don't have to give away all of your secrets, but Bryce and I would like at least a couple of secrets. We're not opening the studio door until you do. <laughs> but yeah, now how are you thinking about investing at a time okay, like this? I am, I am still, as you would imagine from the description I've given you, I'm quite cautious. So I have a core group of stocks, which I'm a very happy holder of long term which are generally smaller companies that are very cheap, which I'm not going to mention. And then I have a group... That's of, right. Just write them down for no, us afterwards. <laughs> uh, then I have a group of other larger company stocks, which I've at the moment have got quite a significant hedge through short futures against. 
Okay. So I'm about 60% exposed to the market at the moment. Okay. So every every dollar basically only gives me 60 cents exposure. But because obviously I've got futures and everything else, the overall exposures in terms of long plus short is obviously much bigger. To delve into the bigger companies and the way I'm thinking, because I think that's of much more use, the kind of things I've been either buying or have held on to or have added to in the last uh, little while sort of fit the description of, of what I've spoken about. Okay, so Treasury Wine Estates, uh, I've added to my holding of Madison Square Garden. Mm. That's now split in two, so there's now two. There's Madison Square Garden Sports, which is the New York Knicks and the New York Rangers ice hockey, and then there's the actual garden itself plus the other properties that they own and run, which is called Madison Square Garden Entertainment. I think that stock is really cheap. I think the sports one is not crazy expensive, but is not super cheap either. I've been adding to sort of other things that kind of meet that high quality, but some of those have bounced really quickly. Mm. And so they're kind of back at prices that I'm struggling with yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. So I do own things like baby bunting. I do own things like treasury wine. One area that I think is really interesting because it's pretty cheap it hasn't been as badly impacted by COVID. It's not, not COVID free of impact, but it's not as bad as many others. It's really cheap and it's pretty obvious if government's going to spend money, these companies are going to benefit. And that's basically construction companies mm. and concrete companies. So believe it or not, I have swallowed hard um, and been tied to the chair and have bought Boral. <laughs> you know, don't forget Boral was eight bucks at one stage. You know, it fell to four before COVID, mm. you know, on the back of its atrocious acquisitions in the US and obviously got down below $2 at one stage uh, in, in the COVID thing. It's about $2.70 at the moment. Boral's really simple. It's a brilliant Australian business that makes 15% return on capital through a cycle, and that's basically concrete. Mm. And then it, and it's a set of what Warren Buffett calls diversifications, you know, businesses that make 5% returns on capital that they spent outrageous amounts of money on. So I think hopefully Boral will flick those when the time is better and we go back to Australia and then we have a super, super business that's cheap. The other one I really like and which is highly contentious is Simic, uh, which is the old Leighton. Most people hate Simic because they're 70 plus controlled by uh, Hock Teeth, which is in itself controlled by, which is German, it's controlled by a Spanish company. I think the management are great. I think they're really good. I think they do a really good job. It's controversial because it uses sort of aggressive financing methods, you know, something called reverse factoring, which is basically, hi, Ren, thanks, mate. I owe you $100 for the service you've provided. Basically, you'll get it in three and a half months' time. <laughs> but I'll give you an alternative. You can go to my mate Bryce over here and he'll he'll fund you and I'll help him fund you and you can have $85 tomorrow. Right, okay. Okay. You supermarket people should know. Yeah. All about <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but that's basically what's been there. And that's not been fully disclosed in the accounts until recently. It has now. 
Okay. But that stock's on a P of 10. Okay. That is the biggest construction company in Australia. Wow. I quite like Lend Lease. That's a much longer term play because Lend Lease is all about urbanization. Mm. Some of the urbanization is fairly high end. Think Barangaroo. Yep. You know, that's not your average Joe's apartment building, <laughs> that's for sure. Mm. And so you're looking at residential property construction in places like London, which has been turned upside down. Sydney, Melbourne, which is very expensive, Italy turned upside down, mm. and then they, they've got a big potential development in San Francisco. So, But it's a great, I mean, the urbanisation plan, don't believe me, you know, listen to Shamara Ramanayaka, you know, today, uh, she's the CEO of Macquarie Bank. Yeah, she's saying, hey, the themes that were there before COVID don't mm. go away, you know, mm. green environmental urbanisation, things like that. Sure, they're going to, you know, slow, but they're not going away. Mm. Uh, and so Len Lease's core theme of urbanisation and investing in that is not going to go away. It's just going to be a much longer-term thing. Mm. And, you know, they recently had a placement at below $10. You know, the stock's about 12 bounced a bit hard. But uh, they're the kind of things to look for. You know, it's it's an A1 top-quality, you know, construction and, and development company. So they're the kind of things I'm trying to look at. I've also obviously been buying cheap LICs. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I've got one bigger play in Australia, which I've disclosed, which is LSF, L1 long short. But I've got some very cheap ones uh, overseas as well, which which I've looked at. Now, you mentioned something there that I want to ask you about, which was capital raisings. Obviously, there's been a heap. Yeah. And obviously, capital markets are liquid and yeah. capital is cheap. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on why so many companies are going the capital raising route and whether you think it is a good sign, you know, if you own those companies that they're doing that. Okay. This is an absolute replay of 2008-9. It's a complete rerun of that. There's no difference. This is what happened in 08 9. One of the great games to play then was to was to buy one share. <laughs> I mean one share. Yeah, and participate in I mean, yeah. Correct. I mean, you know, so find a bunch of companies that you like that you think are going to raise money, buy one share in them, and you'll get a share purchase plan that will enable you to buy up to $30,000 worth. Well, we had a, one of our listeners today actually post in the group a screenshot of a plan he wanted to do now. Is this a yep. good plan? Buy a NAB stock yep. because they're going to do their capital raising. Then- well, they've done it already. You've got to be careful, okay? You can't do it after they've done the raise because – uh, to give you an example, I mean, there's one today, which is, you know, a, a, a very interesting company. It's basically called National Storage Trust. So it, it owns a whole bunch of self-storage units uh, right around Australia. So that, they actually had various takeover bids on the table for it a few months ago at $2.40 a share. And it's actually raising money at $1.59. So that's a fair gap. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, they're doing a share purchase plan, but Today's the 5th of May, and, of course, the books close for that on the 4th of May. Yeah. So you can't buy one share after they've announced it and then mm. buy $30,000 worth, otherwise it's money for jam. Okay, so you've got to be on the register when they make the announcement, so it's the same with NAB. Well, maybe he's uh, completely stuffed his plan. Yeah. His plan was to do, I, buy he's got one the, share, yeah. borrow a heap of money, yeah. pour it in. <laughs> I think he's, I think he's yeah. missed, I think yeah. he's missed, look, the way these things work, he's definitely missed the date, okay? But if you think, if you do a bit of homework and you think XYZ company's going to raise equity and you want to be there... Okay, that that is a really good plan. So I know various people who do that, and it is a straight rerun of 2008-9. That's what you did then, and where companies needed to raise a lot of money 
they generally either uh, share purchase plans have gone up. They were fifteen thousand dollars, I think they were back in oh eight oh nine, and you can now do thirty thousand. And some companies let you apply for extra. And if the, if the share purchase plan is not fully taken up, then they allocate the extra to people who've applied for extra. Uh, the great one of all time for that was West Farmers in late 2008 when they had a share issue at $13.50. And you, you pretty much applied for as much as you wanted and you got it. And, you know, so, mm. you know, you only made three and a bit times your money over <laughs> 10 years so, and a truckload of dividends. Mm. If debt is cheaper than equity, which yeah. is something that you hear, yeah. why do you think companies are going this route rather okay, than... Okay, they're going the equity route because one, one of the things that you've seen over, you know, in, in the past few weeks is, is our banks are going to be much more parsimonious. Okay, So if you're a smaller company that uses bank finance uh, as opposed to being able to access the corporate market you know, and issue corporate bonds or everything else, our own banks are going to be reining themselves in because, you know, they, they've, got some, they've got some issues on their home loan books. The economy is going to be slow. It's perfectly reasonable that, that a bank in that environment doesn't have to lend. You know they're they're going they're going to be harsher at assessing credit risk. That's perfectly reasonable. And when they're harsher at assessing credit risk, it means credit growth is very slow. And so, if you want to raise debt, then you know you've got to raise equity mm. to show the bank that you have access to other forms of capital. And then they'll be more inclined to, you know, lend you you know lend you the sort of ten, twenty, thirty, forty million dollars perhaps that your business needs. And it's the same scale up the numbers a bit you know, for, for some of these bigger companies. So it's logical for the bank to be part of a syndicate that lends you more debt. They want to see that you can raise equity, therefore you should, okay? The trouble is, of course, what, what you've seen, and, you know, I mentioned Lend-Lease, and they're, they're, you know, they're one of the biggest, you know, guilty parties on this, you know. So Lend-Lease, they're issuing a whole bunch of stock at $9.80 a share, having bought back a whole bunch of stock at $17 <laughs> yeah, plus yeah, and yeah. as high as 19 yeah. yeah, that's farcical. Mm. One of the things you're going to see going forward is share buybacks, I think, are going to be a much lesser part of the scene both in Australia and the US. Mm. They've been discredited not because they're bad in themselves but because they've been abused by company management to try and prop the share price up mm. rather than actually be used by company management to buy back shares in the company when they're outrageously cheap because in most cases of course they haven't been in the last three years mm. so it's going to take a while to get share buybacks back and that was a big part of what was driving the u.s market in 2019 expert that we interviewed recently jesse felder writes yeah. about the fantastic four of financial engineering which which yeah. was McDonald's, Caterpillar, Boeing, and 3M that were pumping money into share buybacks, borrowing money to buy their own shares, and were killing it in the bull market. Not so much anymore. <laughs> uh, Jesse puts out a reasonable amount of free material. Mm-hmm. Access it, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, he's it's, great. It's sensible. Yeah. It's very realistic. It's It's been a little more negative mm. uh, than, than the average, but uh, that's that's it's well worth reading. He's a very smart man. So, Andrew, as well as Jesse, are there any other big names that, or little names, that that you think are worth following or reading? 
Yeah, there's. I mean, I, I really encourage people to go on Twitter. I, um, it, it is just the most phenomenal resource, and you know, you, you just regulate it how you want. So uh, there's a guy called Grant Williams. Grant does a thing called Things That Make You Go Hmm. So you just take the first letter of that. I think Real Vision is tremendous. Uh, Grant has been a big part of that. If you have an IG account, you can actually access chunks of Real Vision for nothing. So I, I think any of the stuff that comes out of that, just go on Reddit and go go through the investor letters on Reddit, uh, which which get posted up every quarter. You know, you're, you're, including your own. Yeah, I didn't post <laughs> last quarter, so I'm very good. But yeah, there's you know there, there's a whole bunch of stuff like that. You just can't stop reading at a time like this. It's it's really important because you need to get those different points of view. And as I've said to you, you need to be a psychologist as, as much as you are an economist or an epidemiologist. <laughs> Um, you know, to actually fathom out because it's it's going to be really hard. You know, you, you're looking at some change in behaviour, okay? A few weeks ago, people were telling you that the, the change was going to be so radical that you were never going to need an office again. Yeah. You know, I can assure you everybody's got fed up of WFH in their pyjamas, you know, <laughs> a long time ago. So we are going to need offices again, but are they going to be reconfigured in whatever way and things like that? So, you, you know, you, you can think that through yourself and there's, there's plenty of people to help you think that through. And so how a certain industry is going to change? You know, and, and people can, by reading, people can start to fathom that out for themselves. And that's going to spawn, you know, either a positive investment idea or, of course, a negative investment idea in, in, in doing so. So they're the, they're the kind of people you want to read. Those kind of guys tend to be a little bit more negative. Okay. They tend to be very realistic. They think we're in a debt fuel bubble. And, you know, you've got to sort of fathom out, well, how do we get out of this debt fuel bubble? And, you know, there's a few thoughts they give uh, to that. So they're the kind of guys I think you should read because you can, you can read you can read a million guys who tell you that you know this is the you know this is the start of the greatest bull good. market ever and <laughs> everything's good and you know well Bryce loves reading Jim Cramer for some reason so. <laughs> not true Andrew before we wrap are there any other I guess final comments that you'd like to close this whole piece yeah. um piece yeah with? what should we have asked you <laughs> <laughs> i think the really critical thing is that there's an inclination at these times to rush okay that oh goodness this stock's gone up 10 percent or 15 percent. i thought it was really cheap at a dollar now it's dollar 15 i've missed it okay there is a lot from covid to play out in the real economy okay and you know, remember this thing's only been going a couple of months yeah. okay um, it's not played out in the real economy yet. And how people respond to the reopening of economies, and that reopening is going to be different in America to what it is in Australia and New Zealand or in Germany, you know, or elsewhere. And I think you've got time on your side. So be patient. Don't get rushed into something. You know, and something that was a dollar and all of a sudden, you know, it's a dollar twenty dollar 30 and you're thinking oh i've got to get it now you know you know i like the business i've really got to get it now and then you find they have two profit warnings and it's 90 cents okay because that is what happens at this stage of the cycle and it's that kind of thing that takes the index back down again now whether in australia we see 4400 as it touched at one stage intraday on the 23rd of march or you see below 2200 on the s&p 
500 in the US, which again, it touched intraday on the 23rd of March. I obviously don't know. But what I do know is that some of the stocks are pretty damn expensive given some of the headwinds they face. What's happening is markets are responding to the economy starting to open up. Ah, the economy is opening up, so stocks must go up when the economy opens up. Not true. Okay? Because the economy will not open up in the way that people predict. We don't honestly know how it will open up. It's going to open up very differently in different industries. Okay? If you can tell me when I can go to the pub again and stand next to you at a bar and breathe all over you (laughs) without a mask... Okay, if you know that, fantastic. You're a better man than I am because I don't. Okay, and that's going to dictate how a lot of things move. So just be prepared to be patient. Don't blow all your money at once because, you know, you might have done that in late 2008 and then you had to put up with, uh, you know, a a significant rise up and decline again. Okay, you buy progressively over a period of time in, in these things. There's no substitute for just regular purchases of stocks to build that portfolio of good companies or dirt cheap garbage. I love that thought because I definitely was guilty of feeling like I was missing the boat when the bounce didn't stop yeah. and like that uh, that 23rd of March low hit mm. and it went up a bit and I was like, oh, I think it, I think it will go back down and then it kept going up and I, I felt that in myself. Mm. Um, and it's been a real learning experience, I think, to just sit on money. It is. Yeah. It, I, I acknowledge, you know, it's not easy to sit there when, you know, for example, on the 6th of April, the market went up 7%. Mm. If you can tell me why the market went up 7% on the 6th of April, what was the bit of news that sent the market up 7% on the 6th of April in the US? You can go back through the newspapers, you can go back through every newspaper you can find, and there is no news. Mm. There is nothing. It was just animal spirits caught hold. And, of course, that, that fueled that, that big rise in April. I mean, that was half the rise in one day mm. of April, and you've since seen some volatility. So you, you've got to really be very disciplined, and, you know, you are going to ride the emotional roller coaster of feeling euphoric because you bought the stock at a dollar, and a week later it's a dollar twenty, and you made 20%, and fantastic, you know, and you caught it cheap. But, you know, just be prepared for the fact that bear market, a real bear market is grinding they grind mm. and you wonder whether they're ever going to end and they may end with a crescendo like you know to be fair the bear market of uh, into 2009 ended with you know a spectacular crescendo on on the 9th of march in in australia as well uh, go back and look at the newspapers on the 10th of march to describe it's brilliant yeah it was a real bell ringing moment which is rare but things grind and grind and grind and you wonder that stocks are ever going to go up again. Mm. Well, it's a great piece of advice to end on. To Ren's point, I think a lot of people in our community have been feeling like they have missed the boat. Can I just commend two pieces of work which uh, to your yeah, listenership? Cool. Yeah. I wrote at my own expense two pieces of work which you can find through my Twitter feed and you can find them on LinkedIn under my feed. And, and you can find them on a site called A Rich Life as well. They're basically what's called coffee can investing. They're on Livewire as well, weren't they? They're on Livewire. Yeah. They're both they're on Livewire. They're called coffee can investing. And the first one was a tiny little company I uh, used to control called Equities and Freeholds back in 2009. And we did a backdoor listing transaction on Equities and Freeholds. And before we did that, it had a portfolio in it. And I said... 
I wonder what that portfolio would be worth ten and a half years later if we'd have just held the portfolio and not done the backdoor listing. The portfolio is valued at that time in June 2009 at 1.1 million. At December 31 last year, the same portfolio would have been worth $8 million. Why? It had some things in it that went broke. It had Magellan in it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. It also had Saracen Minerals in it at a price of about 20 cents, you know, four bucks. And it had a couple of other really good little things in it and then a whole lot of humdrum meh in it as well. And it just showed if you hang on to stuff for a long period of time and you pick some stocks and do your homework, you might well get, I mean, obviously Magellan's been a hundred bagger and you don't get those every day for sure. And that certainly did help. So I said for want of a coffee can, we left $7 million on the table. <laughs> but I then had a second article which was about the company that in fact owned 85% of the first company, which was a company called Tidewater. And we said, what would have happened to Tidewater in the same period of time? And the portfolio there was worth about six and a bit million in June 2009. And had we just put that portfolio in a coffee can, and there were 12 stocks in it only, mm. three went broke. Okay, three went broke. The six and a bit million would have been worth $32 million. Wow. And one of the stocks was Vocus, which on the 31st of December was about, I think, $2.90. And Vocus, of course, peaked out at $9.20. So had we sold Vocus at its peak, had held it and sold it at its peak, the six would have become $42 bucks. That's called patient investing, mm. picking some good stocks. We had three tremendous stocks in that portfolio, the companies that became Magellan, became Vocus, and became Hub24 uh, and some others. But read those out. They're only four pages each, mm. okay? It's at my expense because I was the guy that left that money on the table, mm. okay? God, I've made a couple of dollars somewhere else. <laughs> um, and, you know, it just shows you because those things, of course, were owned at the bottom of the market mm. in 2009. So you're worried about the fact you might have missed something because it's gone up from a dollar to a dollar ten or a dollar twenty. Don't mm. read mm. those things. And also, one of the lessons, particularly for your listenership, it's so easy to trade. It's free to trade on, you know, Robin Hood. Yeah. It's 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 free. State, you know, yeah. it, it, it's very low cost to trade on Bell Direct or interactive brokers or IG or whatever. Yeah, fantastic. That's, you know, if you're good at it, tremendous, do it. But it's so easy to trade. And yet, of course, the essence of share investing is be there for the long term, buy the right stocks and hold them for the long term. And of course, it's a great environment at the moment to find those stocks. Okay. You may find them a bit cheaper, as I'm suggesting. And I said, be patient, but please invest regularly. Okay. Is, is a crucial thing. Uh, but I hope if you read those two articles, it will show you just what's possible. Okay. And it also shows you the essence of diversification. You'll have some companies go broke. Well, hopefully not. But you'll have <laughs> some that don't do very well. Yeah. And then you'll find two or three gems that just do really, really well. The first article accesses and shows you the original article about coffee can investing, which was written in 1984 by a guy called Robert Kirby. And there's a great anecdote in that article, which is so easy to find on the internet. Just put Robert Kirby, coffee can investing, 1984, Journal of Portfolio Management. And there's a great anecdote in that article, which shows you the essence of, of what this is all about.
Nice. Great. Well worth uh, checking out. As Andrew said, his Twitter feed, Livewire. We can put the links in our show notes for this as well. Livewire is um, probably Yeah. So we will make sure we do that. But we'll leave it there, Andrew. As always, really enjoyable to have you on the show to help us uh, make sense of what's going yes. on. It's been, it's been great to come to Ansett Central. <laughs> <laughs> Soon could be called Virgin Central. <laughs> so we'll leave it there. I'm sure we'll check in at some point again this year, given that things are pretty crazy at the moment. So I uh, appreciate are. your time. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure to be here, guys. And uh, you know, I hope you all get something out of it. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.